Well, this morning we do take up a new series uh, on songs in the Bible. We'll be doing this for the summer as we lead up to a series beginning in September uh, in 1 Samuel. Um, And I think we will see as we continue through this series that one of the things mentioned in our worship Sunday school will come to the fore. that one of the things we will continue to do in heaven, and there are many things that we won't continue to do as a church, uh, is we will sing. Uh, It is one of the things in our worship service that will be lasting in that place. We will continue to sing songs to our God who has been victorious and has triumphed gloriously. And so in one sense, we can see that the end of our life, when we enter into the rule of God, will be a life of singing. But it's also clear uh, that we need songs for the way. (laughs) That part of the reason that we gather together on Sunday mornings is to sing, and that singing actually bolsters our faith. That may not feel like that sometimes. Uh, Some of the songs we sing have strange language in them. Immortal Visible is a great example of that. Uh, And yet, these songs help us in two ways. They give words to our praise. They magnify God, and we join in that magnification of God. But they also, they teach us. They train us in what we believe. Uh, Our songs, interestingly, are part of our theological education. If you look at the history of the church, much of the theology taught early on was taught in the form of songs. You know, this wasn't uh, a literate world with a lot of paper to be distributed around. And so they learned their theology oftentimes through the singing of the church. So when you sing the Gloria Patri today, uh, you can know that that was part of how we were instructed on what we believed about the Trinity. It was actually used uh, oftentimes against the Arians. Uh, They would be uh, singing their or giving their quotations and songs about there was a time when he was not. And then they would sing back, you know, glory be to the Father and to the Son and the Holy Ghost as it was in the beginning. It is now and ever will be that there was not a time when he was not. And what we see in today's text really is a song that teaches us about the reign of God, where we will be going, how the story ends. But it's also a song that gets us there, a song that we can sing along the way to have the strength needed to make it to the end. And so I want us to see this morning, at least in the first 12 verses, a God who is strong to save, a God who is strong to save. If you see that first section of verses 1 to 12, Uh, We really are beginning in the first at least stated song of the Bible. This is the first song that we encounter historically in Scripture, and it's a song attributed to Moses. Uh, You will notice that this song continues to be sung, at least in some form in heaven, according to Revelation chapter 15, that they sang around the phone the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And so it's a song that will remain It goes by different names, sometimes the song of the sea and otherwise, but what we can tell about it is that it is a victory song. It's the kind of song that you sing when triumph has happened. It's a celebratory song. It's a song that's looking back on an event and claiming the victory that has taken place. And this was common in the ancient world. If you've ever read any of the epic poems uh, or read any of the great literature of the West, you see these kind of songs of celebration that are joined 
uh, in when a military battle is won or when an enemy is defeated. Uh, so if you've read Beowulf, you see things like this. But what is different about this song, interestingly, is that while we call it the song of Moses, Moses is never mentioned in the song. In those great epic poems or in the songs of our heroes, there's always some valiant man that is mentioned in the midst of the song that we can then recount his mighty deeds. But in this song, we only recount the deeds of God, uh, that God is a man of war, that the hero of this story we will see is God himself. And that is something that this song teaches us that we really need to get a hold of, that the hero of the story from beginning to end is God himself. It's a story about God from start to finish. We see in this song, in these 12 verses, you'll notice our enemy is introduced. If God is strong to save, then we have to know what we're being saved from. And the enemy is talked about all over the text of this particular poem. It rehearses uh, that crucial setting and the contest that takes place between God and Pharaoh and all of his armies. And it's that contest that really is being sung about, uh, at least at the beginning of this particular text. And you'll notice that it's not just Pharaoh and his armies, but the sea or the deep, as Moses calls it, is all over this, right? So we have the Red Sea. We notice what's happened. It's a song that Israel is singing as soon as they've crossed over the Red Sea and they've looked back at the victory of God where Pharaoh and all of his armies have been drowned in the closing of the sea. And so that sea is also a main character in this particular poem. It's, right, it's there right along with the other enemies, Pharaoh and his hosts, because of these things, as we've seen before, both Pharaoh and his armies and the Red Sea were uh, nearly equal enemies to the nation of Israel. Uh, they were both a signifier of death. They were either going to go drown in the Red Sea or they were going to wait for this army to catch them. Uh, before them, there was death and behind them, there was death. All around, there were enemies. Moses, as he reflects on the Red Sea, specifies it and he calls it by a particular name. He calls it the deep. And it's not because the Red Sea was fathoms and fathoms uh, deep. It's because he wants to associate it with that reality in Scripture, that deep, for instance, that creation that covered all of the land, right? Darkness was over the face of the deep. So in creation, right, before dry land appears, there is just chaos. There's these chaotic waters. And because they're there, man can't inhabit the land. Creation can't thrive. It requires God to separate those waters so that dry land can appear. And man can be at home in one sense and begin to thrive in this place of dwelling. Well, that word, the deep, returns to us in the flood of Noah when God, if you will, closes those waters back again, just like he does at the Red Sea, and the dry land that had appeared at creation is all covered up. And when it's covered, we see the chaos return. No place for man to live, no place for man to thrive, no place for man to make his home until God breathes and dry land appears once again. 
Well, this imagery is used not on accident by Moses and not just because the Red Sea uh, is water, but because of what is being signified. We have the enemies behind Pharaoh and his armies and the enemies in front, the, the Red Sea. But to Moses, they're the same enemy because Pharaoh has been a bringer of chaos in the life of Israel. That what was meant to be for this nation People living in God's world, imaging back to God his own honor, being fruitful and multiplying and filling the world and ruling over it. All of that has been undone. It's been folded back in the waters of the flood. Instead of subduing the world, they're slaves. You know, day after day, they go about their senseless tasks for a master who has no care for them. Instead of being fruitful, multiplying, this Pharaoh has sought to kill their children and eliminate their ability to grow as a nation. There's this lack of humanity and dignity and freedom. All of these things that were gifted at creation to man have been stolen by Pharaoh. And so he is, if you will, a bringer of chaos, a, a monster who, who lives in the sea. And that's not a strange comment. If you read the book of Revelation or the book of Daniel, all those things are real, but we don't have time for all that now. All we know is that chaos is what has been brought about and chaos is an enemy of God. You know, and they've lived in it so long, it's almost that they've forgotten what they've forgotten. They don't know what it's like to be free anymore. They start to even beg to go back to Egypt. And we think about that in our own lives. I mean, we have forgotten what wholeness really is, what peace would really look like, that we've become so attuned and accustomed to our fragmented and divided lives and our broken relationships and our broken hearts and our sinful realities that we don't even know what it would look like to flourish in the world. Well, that's what Israel has been living and God has come and arranged on this day to be their deliverer, deliver them from the chaos of Egypt and the chaos of this sea. The chaos that you'll notice uh, Pharaoh invoked on their life will be in this text, the chaos he receives, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And so we see this song is this contest. And it really is just a song about, you know, your best guys are going to fight our best guy and we'll see who wins. I mean, that's what the song's about. This is David and Goliath uh, prior to. And so it's God, you know, a singular combatant and Pharaoh. And you'll notice not just his armies, but his best guys, his generals, his ranking officers, all that he could muster against the God of Israel. And notice how they're compared. We have this comparison, this alternating uh, conversation between the praise of God's power and the impotence of this enemy. And you've got to love, you know, the poetics of it all. This uh, up and down language is hard to miss. You know, so the language about God is all very exalted it's about how great he is and the wonder of his majesty. It's all enthronement language. He ends up in a holy abode, which, you know, if you're a king and you live in a house, it's a palace. If you're a god and you live in a house, it's a temple. And his temple is an exalted place. They always are in the ancient world. So everything about God is lifted up and high and everything is, is going upward, even the language of the song. And 
Yet the language about the enemy, everything is downward and descending. Even when he attempts upward language in his boasting, we will see it comes to nothing. Listen to just the terms and the opposites at a very bare minimum. You know, there's a comparison between the victory of God and the defeat of the enemy, the power of God and the defenselessness of Pharaoh and his armies. God is active and mighty and Pharaoh is uh, 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 immovable like a stone and he sinks to the bottom of the sea. They rise up. Notice they're trying to ascend upward only to be cast down. They begin boasting. They begin to speak inflated language only to be humiliated and silenced in the bottom of the water. This God has the power to save and our enemy, this enemy is powerless to destroy. And so we see just this comparison of utter power and utter inability when it's God compared to the enemies of his people. Which if you would have been living in Egypt just, you know, a month before, you would have never spoken of Egypt that way. I mean, the greatest power the world had known at this particular point, and God speaks of them as if they are nothing. And notice what, the, what, what Moses says, who is like him, our God, the Lord? And the implied answer is, well, not Pharaoh. Pharaoh's not like him at all. You know, uh, we know this one guy uh, who we've been afraid of the whole time, and he's not like our God, not in the least. You know, uh, maybe you remember the old uh, Sesame Street uh, or was it Electric Company? I can't remember. It was great either way. But one of these kids is not like the others, you know. That's what Moses is doing. You know, one of these gods is not like all the other gods. All those deities of Egypt sank with their king in the bottom of that ocean, but not our God. He's different. You'll notice in verses 1 and 2, this praise begins to pile up. You know, divine aid has come. And how does it come? The waters stand still like stone on each side. So that there's safe passage for, for God's people. And this safe passage, this thing that becomes salvation for them, is merely a trap for those who are following them. As Pharaoh brags and begins to talk all kinds of uh, trash to the, to the deity that he thinks he's fighting, to the people that he's pursuing, he says he's going to exalt himself, he's going to bring his best men. And you'll notice it says God snorts. Out his nose, you know, uh, it's that kind of scoffing laughter. You've probably heard it. If you're a parent, you've probably done it. Uh, God snorts, and that's all it takes. Pharaoh sinks like a stone in the midst of mighty waters. It's, you know, a very weak activity of God is all that's required to undo all of Pharaoh's might. You'll notice that he sinks the language like a stone in the sea. You know, that, that chaos that Pharaoh inflicted becomes the chaos that he inherits. But notice, because Pharaoh kept hardening his heart, he sinks like a stone in the heart of the sea, Moses says. You know, it's this lex talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Okay, you want to harden yourself to me? Let's see what happens with this hardened heart when it enters into these deep waters. There's something about the defeat of these enemies that Moses says shows us the magnificence and the power of our God. It tells us 
about his character and his power to save. But in particular, it shows us about God's power for us, according to Moses. Moses is going to build a theology for the future off of what he's just experienced in the past. And you see that in these next verses, verses 13 to 18. If God is strong to save, Moses wants us to know he is also strong to keep. He's strong enough to keep. You'll notice in verses 13 to 16, we're moving past the Red Sea. We're even moving past Sinai, which will take up a lot of time in the book, as we'll see. And he starts speaking about the time that they'll be in the wilderness, ultimately until the time they get to Canaan. All these nations, they're going to pass by through their wandering on the way to Canaan. And he starts, you know, doing roll call on the kings of these nations that they better start fearing because Israel's walking through. Which, if you know the rest of the story, seems a little silly. But that, that's what he's saying, that they need to fear and even the Canaanites should shudder. He walks them past the wilderness, even into their future in verses 17 and 18. And the one key thing that we learn is that God cares for the people that he redeems. Moses' point is, God just did this for us through the Red Sea, and now we're opening up into this unknown future. But the promise is this, is the God who acted there is going to walk with us through this place until we get to a final destination. And he's going to begin to use the same language of how God acted in the Red Sea to show this is how he's going to act for us as we walk through the way in this world. And whatever enemies come upon us in the wilderness, whatever battles that we have to fight through Canaan, the same God who threw Pharaoh into the heart of the sea will walk with us. You'll notice in verses 17 and 18, the future is laid before them. God's plan for them is to plant his people in his own house. That God dwells in this holy abode. He says, I'm going to take my people, my possession, and I will plant them with me in my holy abode. That's the future held out for them. They are going to live with God on his holy mountain. All they have to do is get there. They have to get through the wilderness in order to make it home. Does that sound familiar at all? I mean, so what confidence do they have? What confidence do we have? I mean, this, I hope you can see, isn't just Moses' song. There's a reason we'll be singing it in the future. I mean, this is where you live. On the way. <laughs> Delivered from the Red Sea, waiting to make your abode with God. Well, the confidence they have is this, the same God is present in the wilderness who is present at the Red Sea. What they just witnessed concerning the power of God isn't going to vanish as they march forward into this unknown wasteland with enemies all about. Those enemies there may seem big, and you will be just as helpless there as you were before Pharaoh and his armies. But notice how Moses speaks of these bullies that they're about to face. He says, you know, when we go there, they will be trembling and shaking. They will experience anguish and horror. They will melt away in fear 
And it's not because Israel's so scary, but because the God of the Exodus walks with them. And because he's decided to be their God, all of these nations now must fear Israel. Notice the language he uses, they will be rendered like rocks. Literally, they will be petrified. You know, that's where the word comes from. They, uh, they, will, they will turn to stone before God's people. Well, what does that remind us of? Well, Pharaoh turned to stone and he sank into the Red Sea. Well, that same thing's going to happen to our future enemies when we encounter them in these battles to come. But notice the people. The people have this peculiar relationship with God. The reason they can be confident isn't because of their might. It's because God has decided to be their God. Because God redeemed them. Why do they have confidence? Well, because God redeemed them through the Red Sea. Well, are they going to be stronger tomorrow? Don't know. But the God who redeemed them will be there. And they now have a special relationship with him. He has come to their aid. He's taken possession of them. That, that word there in verse 13, he has redeemed them. That's familial language. He's possessed them like a family member. He takes full responsibility for them. He's delivered them from the sea, and he's going to bring them to the mountain. That's what he says. And between here and there, he takes full ownership over their safety uh, and over the fact that they're going to accomplish the final goal, that they're going to make it. I mean, notice the, those verb changes in verses 17 and 18, they turn future. These future verbs of promise that will lead to praise, you will bring them. The one delivered from Egypt and through the sea, from all the wilderness enemies, they can be count, they, they know for a fact that God will plant them on the mountain that they're going to live with him there. The God who did all of that in the past is leading them to their final rest, that the God of the destination is the same God who's with them on the journey. I mean, you see, it's all structured around those you phrases, which is important. It's not you. <laughs> it's you in reference to God, which is good news, as we'll see. You have led the people in covenant faithfulness like a shepherd. That, that steadfast love language. You have led your people like a shepherd. You have guided them. You will plant them. You know, the you from, from those first 12 verses where he says, you and your right hand were strong to save. Well, that same God is there. Powerful, but also compassionate. Powerful, but he has a particular people that he cares about. That that mighty God who is destroying all of these enemies that no one can stand before has decided that these are his people. And that's the confidence of the song. How do we know we're going to make it? Well, because God's your shepherd. He's your redeemer. He's the one that's going to plant you. He is going to do all of it. The story, as we said before, is about him from beginning to end. I mean, the road there is through enemy territory. And it will be like passing in the midst of a sea. But because the same God is there and because he's taken ownership of you, you will pass through unharmed. I mean, that is the promise to Israel. And that's the promise to you as well. And that is the song that we sing, that the God who has redeemed us 
has promised that he will keep us until the very end. And the power that he's used to save us is the power that he's going to use to preserve us in the midst of all of our trials. And that whatever enemy may face, no matter how great they look or how terrifying they appear to us. And if you read those uh, apocalyptic uh, texts of Daniel and Revelation, there's a reason they all look like monsters because they're too big for us to fight, but it's not our fight to have. God has promised that he's walking with us through this thing and that no enemy will have power over us. That in all their boasting, God simply snorts with laughter and they subside. The final thing we want to say in conclusion this morning is this. I mean, it's a beautiful song and it is our song. There's a reason, again, that it's still being sung in heaven. But in order to understand it to its full, you have to see how we get safely home. I mean, look at our text. We're we're right on the heels of, of Exodus 14, the most important day of all of Israel's history. This is their Independence Day. They've been delivered from the Red Sea. There's no more important moment in their whole story. And in the midst of it, God has promised them that he's taken them all the way home to live with him. But you'll notice before they head off into that wilderness where there are enemies and before they make it into the land of Canaan, they have one stop to make. This other mountain that they come to. They come to Mount Sinai. And if you read the book of Exodus, you realize that that mountain stops uh, Traffic, and I mean that. Like it stops uh, the the history of Israel stops uh, uh, literally, and it literarily stops the story. They come to Mount Sinai and they live there for eleven months. I mean, a year is taken out of their life just before this mountain. Fifty-seven chapters will cover this point. The, the story has literally stopped so that we can talk about Sinai and everything that it represents. The stories that precede Sinai will be repeated right after. Moses' father-in-law will be before, he'll come right after. They'll complain before, they'll complain right after. The quail before, the quail right after. Water before, you name it, it's repetition. And it's all to tell us one thing. Something about this mountain is going to dominate their story. This mountain is a teacher. And it's going to teach Israel that the largest roadblock between them and Canaan isn't all the enemies on the way. The thing that's going to keep them out is themselves. That they have a problem to deal with that seems insurmountable. God has promised this nation that he's going to bring her home. And God shows his might By keeping that promise, he shows his ultimate strength when he saves. I mean, notice what he does as he enters into history to perform his mightiest act. He comes in utter humiliation. The God who cast Pharaoh into the sea with a snort is born as an infant in the manger and treated 
or, and ill-treated by his own people until finally he is crucified on a cross in their midst. He is thrown into the same judgment waters as Pharaoh himself, and he is drowned. He sinks to the bottom of the sea. The chaos waters of judgment drown our God, our Savior, our mighty man of valor. I mean, that death that Israel feared all life long, I mean, the chaos of this life that is always tempting you to turn back, your own sin, which you think is the thing that God can't be strong enough to defeat. Christ is overcome by it all as he acts to save his people. His ownership for his people runs so deep that he loses his life in order to keep his promise. I mean, what we have feared all life long, he dove into head first for the sake of rescue and redemption. And just this week, I was watching a video online uh, of a man, probably inebriated, hard to tell, uh, but uh, he was standing before a, the ocean uh, that was extremely turbulent. Uh, you know, he was standing on one of these rocks where the waves are crashing up against it and the rocks get covered with the water. Uh, and you could tell that this was a bad idea. No one else was with him. And even the one filming kept calling for him to come back. Well, what you think would happen did happen. And finally, a wave comes up over him, sweeps him away, and he is taken into the midst of the ocean. And the one filming can do nothing but cry as he watches his friend die. Uh, he drowns to death in the video. And there's a video that follows of a lifeguard uh, kind of recounting the event and saying, you know, what should you do in that situation? And he says, you know, as a lifelong lifeguard, uh, now retired, I know what some of you would say is that if you were on duty because you're a hero, you would have gone in even though the odds were small. And he says, and that sounds brave. He says, uh, but when you enter that water, he says, think of what you've done now to all of your fellow lifeguards on the shore. While they have, made, have been able to make the rational decision of saying, this is too dangerous of a rescue for me to enter. Now they have someone that they're bound to that now emotionally is calling them to rescue, even though they know rationally the odds are low. He says, and you have now uh, raised the stakes, not for yourself as a hero, but for all these others who will now also be forced into a heroism that will lead to their demise. And so he said, the wise thing to do in an untenable situation is to assess the risk and make the proper decision. Well, in the comments, of course, because everyone from their living room knows what to do in such a situation, uh, we're all over the map. But one person said, it makes total sense. But if that was my child, I'd have to go in. To which the first responder, uh, uh, first response in the comments said, well, that's just a stupid decision. It's not rational. You'll die. Of course, the follow-up comments were, yeah, it's not rational. But that was the point of what the lifeguard was saying, that the level of love and attachment that you have uh, starts to kill the level of rationality that you have, and you will do what is necessary to at least attempt to save those you care for. And so this person said, I think I would rather die trying to save my child than have to live knowing I watched them die. 
Well, that is the point. That in a sense, God's love is not rational. And the same thing that would pull the fellow lifeguards in for a fellow lifeguard or a parent into their uh, waters for their child is what pulls our God into the judgment of death on the cross for us. It's not because it makes sense on paper or that you're so worth redeeming. (laughs) It's because he decided to love you. And that love commitment was so great that he would stop at nothing to ultimately redeem you and save, even if it costs him his own life. How do you know you're going to make it to heaven? Because God wants you there. That's how you're going to make it to heaven. It's not by the strength of your resolve or your ability to get better now that you've become a Christian. It's because the God who redeemed you was already willing to die to get you there. And he's not going to stop short on the journey. He's going to make sure that you make it home. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not with him freely give us all good thanks? See, the goal of your salvation is taught by this song. God's goal is to get you home. And God is powerful enough, strong enough, to even overcome you and your sins. And he will stop at nothing until he leads you home. It is grace that has brought you safe thus far. And it is grace that will lead you home. Let's pray.